0: Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and then also we'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. We started a series a long time ago on uh, biblical prosperity, and we've been interrupted by a number of things in the schedule, and uh, holidays, and and uh, my being out of town, and other things. So uh, it's been kind of hard to to establish some continuity. Um, more than anything else, we're trying to uh, well, it seems that that we've been led to to teach standalone messages rather than to build. Precept upon precept. Tonight, I want to try to do the same thing again. I'll remind you that in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses is speaking to the people, the children of Israel, after they've spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. We'll talk about why they did and where they made the mistakes earlier on. But he's trying to encourage them, giving them, he knows he's going off of the scene. He knows his death is uh, uh, soon approaching. And that Joshua is going to be taking over in his place as the leader of the children of Israel. And so he's trying to give uh, warning and instruction and exhortation to the uh, children of Israel so that they can take, it, take uh, possession of the promised land that their fathers, mothers and fathers, the previous generation, did not do 40 years before. And notice he says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all of his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. One translation says, if you'll hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, and only unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Well, we know that's got got to be, uh, whether that's uh, uh, an accurate translation, uh, literal translation of uh, of the original text or not, we know that the principle is sound. Because he talks about if you go after other gods, then you'll perish and and so forth. Now, if we skip down a little bit and see what blessings he's talking about, verse 3, Blessed shalt thou be in the city, blessed shalt thou be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be the basket and the store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing. Notice this is as a result of hearkening unto his commandments, keeping his word. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses. And in all that thy settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself as he has sworn unto thee. If thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord, thy God, and walk in his ways, all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous. Everybody say plenteous. It means more than enough, doesn't it? And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure the heaven, to give the rain unto thy land in his season and to bless all the work of thine hand and thou shalt lend unto many nations thou shalt and thou shalt not borrow the lord shall make thee the head and not the tail and thou shalt be above only and thou shalt not be beneath if thou hearken unto the commandments of the lord thy god which i command thee this day to observe and to do them and thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which i command thee this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Notice that the Bible indicates that the blessing of the Lord comes as a result of keeping or obeying the word of God, and those blessings include all kinds of good things, including provision. Turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 28 is kind of the summarization of some of the things that Moses said earlier to the children of Israel. Most of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell address. And he's already identified and specified certain things about the promised land that they're going into and encouraging them, the encouragement that he gives them to take the land. So let's start reading in Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. Therefore shalt thou keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which He has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping His commandments. And his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest, when thou hast eaten and art full, and hast built goodly houses, and shall dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions, and drought, where there was no water who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that they might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And say in thine heart, here's the warning, don't do this, don't forget God and say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore unto thy fathers, As it is this day. In other words, that last phrase literally means it's just as true today, just as real today as when I first gave it to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 8 enumerates a lot of things that God intends and God wants and and uh, let's say it this way, that is the will of God for them to possess as a part of the promised land. Now, God never changes. If God wanted prosperity and abundance for his people Israel... Then he has to want the same thing for his children today, those of us that have made Jesus the Lord of our lives, or else God has changed, or else his will has changed. And the Bible says that's impossible. So this is a good example, a good list of things that we can see that God would have for us. Now, does God want all of these things for us? Well, the kind of lives that we live, we're not going to have all these things going on at once. We're not going to have sheep in the field and, and cattle growing and stuff like that and work in the city at the same time and so forth. I think the blessing is all-encompassing, meaning the blessing of prosperity and abundance is yours no matter what you do. Bless coming in, bless going out, bless in the city, bless in the field, and so forth. Are you with me? Now, what does the Bible say is the result or the condition for all these blessings of prosperity and abundance being the, uh, being Israel's keeping the word he says there's a danger that goes along with abundance the danger is people get lifted up and think that they had something to do with the results he said be careful that you don't think that remember that it's God that gives you the power to get wealth now what is the power to get wealth it's simple It's right there in front of us. The power to get wealth, since these blessings of prosperity, blessings of abundance, whatever you want to call them, since all these parts of provision, aspects of provision are are conditional on keeping the word of God, then the power to get wealth has to be faith in the word of God. Has to be. Because there's no other way to get the blessing. There's no other way for God to command the blessing upon you in your storehouses and everything you set your hand unto, except by keeping the word. There's no way to have the goodly houses and the increase of flocks and and cattle and sheep and so forth except through the keeping of the word, the walking in his ways and the keeping of his commandments. Therefore, the power to get wealth has to be faith in the word of God. Has to be. There's no other possibility. Now, let me ask you a question. This point in time in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 28 is after the children of Israel have been walking around in the wilderness for 40 years. Have they been in the promised land? Nope, never set foot there. How does Moses know all the stuff that's there? How does he know? It's not 40 years of experience that's brought him that knowledge. This has to be knowledge that he had before he ever got to the promised land 40 years earlier. In other words, this cannot be new information to the children of Israel. The Lord brings thee into a good land. Let me go back to about verse... Uh, Verse 7, for the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness and shall not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. How does he know all that stuff's in the promised land if he's never been there? Do you understand the point that I'm trying to get to? These are things that God has revealed to him before they ever left Egypt about the land that he was taking them to. God told him, even standing before the burning bush, about the promised land. He told him it was a land where the Canaanites were and the Hittites and the Amorites and Malachites and whatever other groups of people who were there. Big, long list of people in that land. Well, God must have told him the things about the promised land that are summarized by a land that flows with milk and honey. A land that flows with milk and honey is not just some catchphrase that means there's milk and there's honey there, but it means that there are all these things that he enumerated in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In other words, the point I'm trying to get across to you is the generation that takes the promised land did not have more information about the land than their forefathers. They knew exactly the same thing about the land They knew where where they were going. They knew what God's will was. They knew that it was a land that God said belonged to them. They knew that it was a land that God had prepared for them ahead of time. Why then did they not take it 40 years earlier? Let's turn back to, to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. See, folks, the reality is this. Most people struggle with whether or not it's the will of God for them to prosper. And that's established. And they think that the reason that they don't prosper in the way that the Bible says that we can is because it must not be God's will for them to have these things. When in reality, they make the same mistake. I'm talking about word of faith people. They make the same mistake that the children of Israel did in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13 tells us that after the Israel came out of the promise uh, out of uh, Egypt. They came to the edge of the promised land. They have left Egypt and have been gone from Egypt about anywhere from a year and a half to two and a half years. In other words, it was not a straight 10 day journey or something like that. They stayed encamped for um, uh, about 18 months at one place where they received the law. It took a while for, for the children of Israel to be taught the law to hear about what the commandments of God were. And so it's been about two and a half years since God led them forth out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea and so forth until they get to the edge of the promised land. Now, when they get to the edge of the promised land, Moses takes 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's start reading in verse uh, 17. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is, And the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether it be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage and bring of the fruit and of the land. Now the time was the time of the first stripe of grapes. Now let me ask you a question. What is Moses saying? Is he saying go into the land and see what this place is that God wants us to take? If that's the case, why would he have told them it's a the land of milk and honey? Why would he have told them, given them information that intimated that this was a land that was a good land? No, Moses is saying go see if it's not what I told you it was. Go see for yourself If it's not what I told you it was, what had he told them that it was? Well, if he didn't tell this generation, Numbers 13 generation, the same thing that he told their their sons and their daughters in Deuteronomy chapter 8, then he did them a disservice. He's trying to get them to see this land is everything God promised that it would be. This is great. Let's take this. This is a wonderful place that God's provided for us. But what do they do? Well, they went and spied out the land, We won't read the whole thing, but we'll skip down a little bit. Verse 25. Skip down with me to verse 25. And they returned from searching of the land after the 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel, under the wilderness of Paran, to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They brought back a cluster of grapes that the Bible says that they had to, was so big that they had to carry it on one stick or a staff between two people. They brought back pomegranates and other things that they could bring back to show the people. So they showed them the fruit of the land, and they told him and said, We came into the land whether thou sentest us, and surely it flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit thereof. This is the fruit of it. In other words, they're saying it is just exactly what you told us that it would be. And this is the proof so that everybody will see. It's exactly what you told us it would be. Now, again, if he's told them something other than he told their children in in Deuteronomy chapter 8, which, again, I'll make the point, he does not have additional information in Deuteronomy chapter 8 by having been in the land. He's never seen it. And it doesn't make sense that God would tell the children what the land was and the specifics of the land and not tell that to the forefathers. Why would he give the information to the children and not the fathers? Why would he give it to one generation and not the other generation, the first generation? Doesn't make sense, does it? That's not the way God works. God's not going to give the children one bit of information that the fathers didn't have because then if the children are able to take something that the fathers couldn't take, the fathers would have an accusation against God. Well, if we had only known what it was, then yeah, we would have taken it too. Now, God deals with people equitably. He deals with people equally. So this is what the children of Israel are saying. The 12 spies are saying before all the congregation, they told him and said, we came into the land whether thou sentest us and surely it flows with milk and honey and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. If you go back and where God first started talking to Israel about the promised land, you'll find out that all the people they talk about here are the ones that God told them were there already. Shouldn't have been a surprise. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea, by the coast of Jordan. Why would Moses want them to know that the people he said were there were really there? To come up with a strategy to take the promised land. What did they take it as? The 12 spies took it as proof that we can't do it because all these people are there. But God's already told them all those people are there. Shouldn't have been a surprise. They shouldn't have let the circumstances change their thinking one little bit because they already knew that the children, these uh, Amalekites and Amorites and so forth were there. Verse 30, and Caleb still the people before Moses And said let us go up at once and possess it for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel saying the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants the sons of Anak which come of the giants and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. Let's keep reading down through chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto the men, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would God we had died in this wilderness. And wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return unto Egypt. Why did the children of Israel not take the promised land? Well, the easy answer is unbelief. They brought up an evil report. Well, what is an evil report? An evil report is anything that says the word of God is not true. God considers that evil in his sight. But let's get a little bit more practical about things. Why did they not take the promised land? The answer is very simple, and that is they refused to accept change. What kept the children of Israel out of the prosperity that God had designed and planned for them, destined for them for 40 years? They refused to accept change. Now, change is an interesting thing because change is always a part of growing. The problem is nobody likes change. Now I understand this very well I like things to be the same I don't like restaurants that I enjoy going to To change their menu I like everything to be the same I don't like hiring new employees I want to hire one person Have him work for me for life And be done with it And most people want that too They don't want to change jobs They want one job Keep it for life Just make more and more and more And more and more and more money each year on it And stay with something they're comfortable The problem is We never grow unless we change Now, notice their change or their resistance to change. They say, we accept the report of the 10 spies, 10 of the 12 spies came back with an evil report saying we can't do what God said we can do. The majority is always going to side against God, folks. You need to understand that. If you're looking to be accepted and and part of the gang and so forth, you better find a better gang. You better find your own company, people that want to serve God, because most people don't. Most Christians don't. Most Christians don't want to believe the word. They don't want to stand in faith for the same reason. They don't want the pressure that comes with change. It's easier. I know for a fact that there are multitudes of people that know the truth that know God's not in control, that go, know that God's not the one pulling strings, making good things happen and making bad things happen. They know God's not the one making people sick. They know God's not the one causing tragedies and destruction on the earth. They know those things, but it's easier to go along with the crowd and just say, well, whatever the will of God is, is what will happen because they don't want to accept the pressure, the stress, the difficulty of change, Notice how to what degree these people resist change. They say we'd rather go back to Egypt than to accept the change that's going to bring us the promised land prosperity. Weren't they slaves in Egypt? Do they think they're going to go back and run Egypt? What do they mean when they say we'd rather go back to Egypt? They mean they'd go back, rather go back to eating garlics and leeks. That's one of the things that they start pining for when they get in the wilderness and don't have food to eat that they enjoy or that they're used to, accustomed to. They said, oh, what about those onions in Egypt? I mean, we could have onion soup all day, every day. If only we could make it back to Egypt. They are so resistant to change that they say, we'd rather die in the wilderness. Well, that doesn't take any effort. Folks, what I want you to understand is this your prosperity depends on your change. Your prosperity depends on your change, your willingness and your ability to change. Now, change is an interesting thing because change depends on one, well, it's really two things, but they go together, and that is strength and courage. Strength and courage. Without those, nobody changes. Nobody changes. You know, it's an interesting thing. If you go to Romans chapter 12, I'm, I'm not telling you to, but if you look at Romans chapter 12, you'll find out that one of the first things that God tells the believer to do is to change his thinking. Romans twelve two: be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God commands by the Holy Ghost for the believer, those that have already made Jesus the Lord of their lives, the Christian, the number one thing that he needs to do is to change his thinking. How many Christians do you know that do that? Pretty small number. Extremely small percentage. Why? It's clearly spelled out in the word. Why not? Because nobody likes to embrace change. Because change takes strength and courage. Now turn with me over to Joshua chapter 1. Forty years go by. They spend those 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Moses comes to the end of his life. God takes him up into the mountain and buries him. I'm so glad we don't know where Moses' grave is. Probably another place for the Jews and the Arabs and the Muslims to fight over. Let's start reading in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass... That the Lord spake unto Joshua the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates. All the land of the Hittites and under the great sea, going toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Now, if you're Joshua and God speaks this to you, what are you thinking? I'm thinking, woohoo. I cannot wait. To see this stuff work I'm going to remember what I saw with Moses Moses talked with God face to face in the cloud Moses presided over the earth swallowing up the sons of Korah when they tried to impose upon themselves that they could stand in the same office with God to represent God as Moses the ground opened up swallowed them and closed back up I'm thinking these things, no matter, be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. I'm thinking Moses before Pharaoh. I'm thinking Moses and the sons of Korah. I'm thinking time after time after time in these 40 years of wilderness where we've been attacked and won every battle when we obeyed what God said to do because Moses simply did what God told him to do. I'm thinking this is awesome. Moses parted the Red Sea. Well, the Jordan River is pretty small in comparison, but we've got water. I'm thinking all of this stuff. And then notice the next thing that God says to him. Verse 6. As soon as he's told him, No man shall be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Never leave you. Never let you down. Therefore, verse 6, Be strong and of good courage. Why? Why? Why do we need to be strong and of good courage if God's going to do everything like he did for Moses? Because God didn't do everything for Moses the way we think he did. So be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto thy fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous. That thou mayest observe to do according to the law. All the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left. That thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night. That thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. What's he telling him? Verse 8 he's saying change the way you think. Think what the word says instead of the way you're normally accustomed to thinking. Change your thinking. First thing he tells Joshua after telling him, I'll be with you, just like I was with Moses, he says, be strong and very courageous. Be strong and of good courage. And he says, change your thinking. Verse 9, have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Now there's a Hebrew phrase here and forgive the, the attempt at, trans, at uh, pronunciation. The word strong is the word Kazakh. The word courageous is "almatz." So, Kazakh almatz. again, forgive the tr- attempt at, trans, at uh, pronunciation, is a phrase that's used over and over and over again in Scripture. Kazakh Amats, it means be strong and of good courage. Strength and courage are not the same things. Most of the time when it's used in Scripture, this phrase, it's in connection with the time of promotion. David told Solomon, be strong and of good courage when he turned the kingdom over to him. God said it to certain people. The prophet said it to certain people. And almost in every case, not not everyone, but in most cases, this phrase, Kozak Amats" is used in relation to a promotion. Be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. Now, what's the difference between strength and courage? Well, strength means ability. Courage means willingness to use it. Winston Churchill said that World War II was totally unnecessary. That when Hitler first crossed the river over into the Rhineland, invaded the Rhineland. He said if if, uh, uh, England and the Allies had met Hitler there, they could have stripped him of his power, done away with his political position as the head of the German state, and World War II would have been totally avoided. And it wasn't a matter of not having the strength or the military might to stop him there before he got a foothold in so many other countries it was that there was no political will to use the military might to stop what turned out to be one of the greatest disasters in the history of the world. We see some of the same things happening today. America could stop the rise of Islamic terrorism, really without a whole lot of difficulty. But there's no political will to use the might of the military. If you happen to see some of the president's speech on Sunday night, that was emphasized in great detail. So strength alone is not enough. There has to be the courage or the will to use the strength. And now notice what God told Joshua. Kozak Amatz, be strong and of good courage. Now this is not the first time Joshua's heard that. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31 is where God's telling Joshua, I'm sorry, telling Moses, get Joshua ready. And Moses begins to speak to Joshua, chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, verse 23, and he, Moses, gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge and said, be strong and of good courage. Kazak Ametz. Kazak Ametz. Now, what does this indicate? It tells me that Moses knew something about being strong and of good courage. It tells us that maybe God operated a little differently than what we think that he did. For example, most of the time we think of the power of God working through or for Moses in relation to the the 10 plagues of Egypt. Where Moses said, this is going to happen and then it happened. Well, that sounds great. I mean, we all want that. Everybody's willing to step up for that. If all we have to do is say something's going to happen and then it takes place, bingo. We'll go out on the limb that far. But Moses seems to have learned something about more than just saying or calling something into being when he tells Joshua to be strong and of good courage. He's telling him that it takes not only strength but the willingness to use that strength to be an effective leader. He said, be strong and of good courage, for thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swear unto them, and I will be with thee. Moses is talking for God. But Moses is telling him, be strong and of good courage. What does Moses know about being strong and of good courage? Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 15. I've got the wrong reference. Where did they cross the Red Sea? I'll find it. Serves me right for trying to use the... It's Exodus chapter 14. Serves me right for trying to use my iPad instead of my Bible. The anointing's not on iPads. Okay, Exodus chapter 14. This is when Moses has led the children of Israel to the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's coming out against them. Moses says to the people in verse 13, And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord. For he will show unto you this day, which he will show unto you this day, for the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore, criest thou unto me, speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. Moses is hemmed in. He's got mountains on one side, mountains on the other side, and the Red Sea behind him or in front of him. On The, um, the only way that there is is the Red Sea. So Moses says to the people, Sounds good. Sounds strong being the good leader. Don't worry, people. Today you're going to see the salvation of the Lord. You're going to see God come from, come through for you in a mighty, mighty way. Then God says, Moses, what are you crying unto me for? Tell the children of Israel that they go forward. Tell the children of Israel that they go forward. Tell the children of Israel that they go forward. Now, is there not something missing here in this story? Shouldn't the Red Sea be parted first before they go forward? See that's the way we want it to be and that's the way we think that it always worked with Moses God just lays everything out in front of him and then here we go. We walk right through We want that to be the way that the power of God works for us, don't we? God says i'll stand before you with your enemies The ones that come out against you shall flee seven ways. Well, okay, let's see him running and then we'll move But that's not the way that it works folks God says to Moses, tell the children of Israel that they go forward. Tell the children of Israel that they go forward. But lift up your rod, verse 16, lift up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. You know what Jewish tradition tells us? The, uh, the oral tradition tells us that the parting of the Red Sea was not the way we see it in the movies. The parting of the Red Sea in the movies is everybody's gathered up complaining to Moses saying, oh, what are we going to do? We're going to die. What are we going to do? Moses said, hush, hush, hush. Watch this. And then the Red Sea parts and everybody says, wow, never seen that before. And Moses says, now go. And everybody goes. Jewish tradition. The oral tradition of the ancient rabbis say, and it it originated with Moses, uh, uh, supposedly, It originated with Moses. Moses relating the story to others that would carry on the tradition. Keep the record, so to speak. The tradition tells us that Moses told the children of Israel to go forward, stretch forth his hand over the water, and it was only when the people started getting about neck deep into the edge of the water that the waters parted. And that's why it tells them to go forward before it's parted. That's why the progression in Scripture, according to the Jews now, you decide for yourself. There's no way to prove it or disprove it one way or the other. But according to the tradition of the Jews, the ancient rabbis teaching, it was only when the children of Israel started getting up about neck deep in the water that that's when the waters parted. And here's the Jewish principle behind that. You create your own miracle by going forward. Because it's only by going forward that the power of God is shown that the word of God is shown to be believed in and the power of God is manifested. Now, I'm not here to tell you it's this way and it can't be some other way. If you want to discount that, I have nothing to disprove it. However, I do know that 40 years later, when the children of Israel come to the Jordan River, the Bible says specifically that the Jordan River parted when the priests got their foot in the water. So what's happening? The priests are walking into the water because God said he'd part the river. Just like he parted the Red Sea for Moses, he'd part the river. So what's the picture? The picture is the, the priests have got the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, carrying it on poles on their shoulders the way they're supposed to, and when they get to the edge of the water, the water parts. They're acting on what Joshua told them to do. What did Joshua tell them to do? What he learned from Moses about the Red Sea, in my opinion. Don't let the, the existence of the sea or the river... Stop you from going forward. God said that he would take you to the promised land. He can't take you to the promised land. If Pharaoh kills you at the Red Sea. So no matter how it looks like our lives are in jeopardy or whatever else the case is, we can't die here. Which is the same thing they could have thought in Numbers chapter 13. Which is exactly what Caleb and Joshua did think and said. We can't die here. God said the land was ours. Smith Wigglesworth used to say, if the, if the spirit doesn't move me, I move him. Now, what he did, I'm not telling you to do the same thing. I'm just relating a story. Wigglesworth would take the most difficult case of sickness to get the meeting started. He would call somebody out and say, who's got the worst? case of sickness or disease here or he'd say the first one down here come running and you get healed people would ask him about that he did that not in every meeting but in many meetings he did and people would ask him about that why does God use you like that and he said what do you mean well doesn't God tell you to tell people to come down like that or, or take the hardest case first or something like that and he said no if the spirit doesn't move me I move him In other words, he's making a demand on the power of God being manifest. Well, then, Pastor Mike, why don't we do that today? Because he was doing it in accordance with his office. If you stood in the same office as he did, you could do that. I don't. Do you? If so, come on down here and heal the hardest case. But see, some of us have tried that in the flesh and we failed. Because it doesn't work in the flesh. But it worked for him because he was placing a demand on the word of God and the anointing that was on him as in the office that he stood in, in the body of Christ. Well, isn't that what Moses is doing? Isn't that what Joshua does 40 years down the road? So when Moses tells Joshua, be strong and of good courage, Joshua knows what he's saying. He's saying, be willing to step out before anything looks like it's changed. And folks, this is what the Jews do. They don't know anything about confessing the word. They don't know anything about standing in faith the way that we know and understand standing in faith. But they do know about moving forward, expecting God to come through. And they do that in business every day. And it works miraculously. Let me remind you of uh, three different instances. You Remember the story of Elijah, the time of famine? God says to him, First, he takes him to a brook and has the ravens bring him uh, bread and flesh in the morning and the evening. But then it's it's a time of drought. So the little brook dries up. The water runs out. So God says, go to a widow in Zarephath or go to Zarephath. I've I've, uh, prepared a widow there to take care of you, to sustain you. Now, if I'm Elijah, I'm thinking widow, inheritance, somebody with means. This is great. He gets to Zarephath, and he finds a woman gathering sticks for the sun. two sticks to make a fire. How big a fire can you make with two sticks? So he says, woman, make me a cake. She said, I don't have a cake. I've got just enough meal to make one cake for me and my son, and after that, we're going to die. So her day timer for the day is gather sticks, make fire, make cake, die. That's it. That's her vision for the future. After this, we're out of food, we die. But Elijah said to her, that's fine, do everything you're planning to do, but make me a cake first, for God has said, the meal shall not waste or run out and the cruise of oil shall not fail until the end of the famine. She does what he says. She shows strength and courage. She shows strength and courage. She shows strength and courage. And it happens just the way that Elijah told her. Now, let me use that as an example of what the the difference between strength and courage is. Strength is a strategy. Strength is the ability that comes from a plan. Where do we get the strength or the ability to make the plan that God would have us to make? That's what the word's all about. Strength comes from the Word of God. But courage is something you decide whether or not you're going to do. Now, you remember the story we read in Numbers 13 and 14? Twelve spies come back, ten of them give an evil report. Chapter 14 starts off and all the congregation lifted up their voice and wept that night. What happened? The cowardice of the ten spies was contagious. Contagious. The cowardice of the ten spies was contagious. It got over onto the whole congregation. Everybody picked up their sad song. Why did the congregation not step up? Why wasn't there somebody in the group that didn't step up and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God made water come out of a rock. God defeated Pharaoh and his army. Pharaoh's army was the, the, the greatest military force on the face of the earth. These people can't be greater than them, are they? Why isn't somebody at least asking questions? Because cowardice is contagious. Fear is contagious. That's why it's so important for you not to speak fear. Because fear will increase. The more you hear fear, it will increase. If you hear somebody else's fear, it will increase in you. If you hear your own fear, it will increase in you too. But the good news is, is this. Courage is also contagious. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Nobody wanted anything to do with Goliath, but David finally talks to King Saul into letting him go. He goes out, takes the rock out of his bag, puts it in a sling, slings that thing up there and hits Goliath in the forehead. Goliath sinks down. Then David goes running up and grabs his sword, this giant, humongous sword, and cuts it, uh, Goliath's head off. The Bible says when he cut Goliath's head off and held it up for everybody to see, then the armies of Israel ran against the Philistines and chased them all day and all night. Now, why in the world is the Israeli army running to chase down the Philistines when they had never wanted anything to do with them up to that point? Because David's courage was contagious. Another story. In Elisha's time, Second Kings chapter 2, I think it is. woman comes whose husband has just died and her sons have been going to be sold into slavery to pay off her debt. Her, the, her husband, the father of the sons, was one of the priests of the temple. They died penniless. And so she comes to Elisha and she says, What will I do? I'm about to lose my family. Elisha says, go gather as many jars as you can find and shut the doors with you and your kids. Take what you have. He asked her first, what do you have? She said, I've only got a little bottle of oil. He said, okay, go get as many jars or containers as you can find. Go borrow them from everybody you can borrow from. Shut the doors where it's just you and your family on the inside and pour them from the bottle into the, the containers and then sell what you have. More than what you need, sell what you have and pay off your debt. And there was just enough to fill every container that she had. Somebody, somebody said, and I, I don't know, it, it's a nice thought. Somebody said she should have gone into the jar making business. Because as long as she's got a container, this, this oil is going to keep pouring. What was, what was the, the ingredient for her? She got strength from the Word of God. She got instruction from the Word of God and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. That's the strength that it takes to add courage too. She had strength from the word of God and the courage, the strength of character, the willingness to do what was necessary to fix your problem. See, a lot of people have the word they say, well, I just don't know what I ought to do, Pastor Mike. Have the courage to believe it. Have the courage to act on it. I don't know if you know this or not, but God commands you to give first. Nowhere does the Bible say that God will open the windows of heaven unto you so you can tithe. It says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse and prove me if I won't open the windows of heaven. The principle of Luke six thirty eight is give and it'll be given unto you not God will give you so you can give. God expects you to do something first. Finally the third example that I want to give you is in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus bars the boat of Peter and John. Pushes out from shore a little bit and teaches the people by the seaside. After he finishes teaching he says to Peter launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch of fish. Peter says, Master, we worked all night long. We fished when you're supposed to fish, the time of day when you're supposed to fish, and we didn't catch anything. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. What happened? Peter used strength and courage. Where did he get the strength from? The word of God. There was something about this man's preaching, something about Jesus' preaching that Peter has just listened to, sitting next to in the boat, that made him willing to, to do what he told him to do when he's when as far as Peter's concerned, this guy didn't know anything about fishing. He changed his thinking about fishing to act on the word, got one of the greatest financial blessings that he'd ever had in his life. He got a net-breaking, boat-sinking load of fish. Folks, your prosperity is tied to your strength and courage. Your prosperity is tied to your strength and courage. The power to get wealth is the courage to believe and act on God's word. But God's waiting for you to take the step. God's waiting for you to move first. God's waiting for your foot to touch the edge of the water. He's not going to let you sit up on the shore, on the hillside, and wait for the water to part and then walk down through it. He's waiting for you to make your move. And this is what the Jews get. Jews understand this. Folks, change is a part of life. Embrace change and prosper. Embrace change and prosper. Resist change and spend 40 years in the wilderness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to be doers thereof. Lord, we love you. We thank you that it's your will for each of us to have abundance. We thank you for the strength that the word of God provides us because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And faith is the power to get wealth. Thank you, Father, that as we act in align with your word, in obedience to what you've spoken to us in the written word of God and also the things you've spoken to our hearts, we thank you, Father, that your provision, the fullness of your will comes to pass in our lives. As we change our thinking, Father, to be in line with your thinking in your word, I thank you that we experience your blessing and your prosperity because it is your will. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.